And 2024 is the final battle. That's going to be the big one. If you put me back in the White House, their reign will be over, and America will be a free nation once again. Donald Trump is leading the field of Republican presidential candidates. It doesn't seem to matter what happened on January 6th, or that he was recently found liable for sexual assault. He's still popular in the polls, and that leaves reporters to figure out how to cover his campaign. Is neutral objectivity possible when dealing with someone who has been accused of trying to overthrow an election? And is there a way to report on what he says without unintentionally becoming a platform for misinformation? When Caitlin Collins moderated a live town hall with the former president for CNN, it felt like 2016 all over again. Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you're a nasty person, I'll tell you. Donald Trump learned tricks and insults and ways to kind of disrupt a television moment that he has translated to political journalism. Journalists try to nail Trump down on facts, um, but he is really operating in a different arena. You're listening to The Political Scene. My colleagues Jelani Cobb and Steve Cole are staff writers at The New Yorker. They also both teach at the Columbia Journalism School. So they've been thinking about this question of how the media should cover Trump. Hi, Jelani. Hi, Steve. Thank you both so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So the media has been struggling with the challenges of covering Donald Trump since his first presidential campaign. I'm wondering if you two could start by just laying out for the listeners who aren't in the media and who, you know, maybe have never conducted an interview before, what it is about Trump as a person, like his style, his rhetoric, that makes him a uniquely difficult subject to interview and then to write about? Like, how is he different from the usual source? Okay, I'll, I'll um, take a pass at it. Thank you, Steve. Journalists are used to dealing with politicians who don't talk straight, but they're not used to television performers who will insult them and whose lies are so outrageous and so difficult to address that it's almost a category problem. Like mm. if, you, if you deal with a politician who says something about the way Medicare works that's wrong, well, you can interrupt him and say, no, that's actually not what the law says, Senator. But when Donald Trump starts talking about observable facts like the size of a crowd that turned out to see him that not only the journalist but the audience can see is false. It's not obvious to professional reporters, you know, how to intervene and hold Trump to account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that was notable when Donald Trump first emerged was that, you know, people didn't take him seriously. That, you know, was a very common perspective. And then when people did engage with him, the journalists generally had a better command of the facts, which you would think, in theory, gives you an advantage. Except that it was kind of asymmetrical conflict, because on the one side, you were talking about facts, and on the other side, you were talking about rhetoric that was mostly directed at people's emotional sentiments. The other thing that I think uh, people know about him now, uh, but probably have underestimated the import of it, is that he has excellent comedic timing, which is generally not a skill set you expect journalists to have. And so if he is hitting someone with a one-liner or 
an insult that his audience in particular uh, has been conditioned to accept or think of as funny, he's going to win time and time again on that score. Yeah, no, I feel like his sense of humor and comedic timing, it's something that we definitely saw that on display during the recent CNN town hall. It seems like that town hall was almost designed to play to his strengths in the sense that it put him in front of an audience. There was fact-checking, but it didn't really seem to be that effective. I guess I'm wondering what you think the right setting to interview Donald Trump in, what that setting would be. I mean, I, I think that it's an interesting question. I haven't thought a lot about it, but what leaps to mind is that a one-on-one interview with two people sitting across from one another in chairs without an audience would be the best way to interview him. And when I was thinking about relative successes where individual interviews have elicited comments from Trump that made news, not of the sort Trump wanted to make, they have almost all come from that format. And also not live. So with the ability of journalists to select the portion of the interview that they believe is newsworthy, and the burden is on them to be fair, but still, the live setting plays to the performer, plays to the populist. He's speaking over the journalist's head to an audience in a live setting in a way that a traditional sit-down one-on-one doesn't allow him to do. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the old television talk show format where you might have someone on a stage with no one there, dark background, and it's simply two people having an exchange. You know, with someone like Trump, you know, to use the tennis analogy, he's a grass player who you have to put on clay. Uh, Hmm. You know, to simply be in a format that favors him is going to make it very difficult for any kind of news function to take place. But that's hard, right? Because you would assume that especially like a cable news network, that they would have an incentive to want to make the interview more of a spectacle and to have an audience. I mean, you could see the risk of a one-on-one interview while actually producing more relevant information being kind of boring in comparison to something like a town hall. Well, I think we go back to the, the infamous comment that Les Moonves made you know, at the outset of this, where he said that Trump was terrible for America, but great for CBS. And so the question, I think, is which of those is the priority? If you are concerned about the journalistic element of it, then I think you do it in a format that highlights your ability to get this person on the record, to get this person to answer questions that they may not want to answer, and to minimize their ability to play to the crowd like a kind of schoolyard bully. If you're interested in particularly that spectacle of the schoolyard bully whipping up a frenzy, then you take the approach that CNN took in the town hall. The CNN town hall made me reflect on how we judge television networks like CNN on the basis of an almost nostalgic idea of what the duty of television is in politics that goes back to the 1960s and the 1970s when there was this kind of unwritten constitution that the commercial networks would not gratuitously stage a spectacle because it attracted ratings, that they had a duty to function as moderators of a kind of political public square. In another country, a publicly owned media company might do this, the BBC or state broadcasters in France, Germany, or Japan. But in the U.S., commercial networks did it in exchange for regulatory permission. Well, 
that era is long gone, but we still trot out CNN executive producers and interrogate them on whether or not they're carrying out the public interest. Maybe we should be more realistic. In this era of polarized politics, the money in cable news is from connecting with passionate, if narrow, audiences the way Fox does. CNN has struggled to identify a strategy that produces a sustained emotional relationship with an audience, even a narrow audience. So maybe we should be thinking about how to judge journalistic performance in an updated kind of context. Well, I think that's a really great point that Steve brings up. And it kind of segues into our recent experience at the journalism school, where our commencement speaker was Christiane Amanpour, who made some very pointed criticisms of the way that CNN conducted the town hall with Donald Trump. But I think the salient thing here is that she mentioned at the outset that she had been at CNN for 40 years, that this is her 40th year at the network. And she really bridges the era that Steve was talking about at the beginning and to the era that we're talking about now, where cable news was just kind of presumed to operate under the same sorts of imperatives that network news had. And now an era where in competing with everything from social media to other far more kind of tabloid inclined cable networks, they have to find a new way of operating. And I think that her comments really highlighted the distinction between someone who has been able to see that entire arc of development at CNN. It seems like CNN's defense of the the town hall after it received a bunch of criticism for airing it, it seems like their defense has sort of been centered around this idea of, of fairness. They've talked about how they have a history of holding these kinds of live town halls with political candidates. And someone who worked there made the point that, you know, basically we have to treat Trump like anyone else running for president. I mean, I guess my first question is, one, is that even possible? I mean, how can you be sort of objective and fair when you have someone who, you know, has been accused of inciting an insurrection. And at the same time, I mean, it does seem funny that like CNN might have a live town hall with Joe Biden, but then do a one-on-one -on -one interview with Trump in a room that isn't aired live and, you know, has constant fact-checking and whatnot. Like, how do you, I guess, run news coverage in a way that's fair when you have two candidates who are so different? I think that this gets at the heart of the real question, which is the extent to which Donald Trump represents something atypical in American political life. There were lots of people who thought this at the beginning of his political career. Notably, The New Yorker did a whole digital issue called Trump and the yeah. Truth. And it pointed out that even as a candidate, his voluminous untruths outstripped what you were accustomed to seeing, the kind of default level of, you know, mendacity or stretching truth that you might expect from a political candidate. Then that was just maybe a theoretical observation. But we now have a track record. This is a person who has been impeached twice, a person who told the, the Secretary of State of Georgia to find 11,000 votes for him in that election and who is under investigation you know, for those actions and a person who attempted to mount an insurrection to overturn a 
American presidential election. It seems as if the idea of treating him differently would be unfair. Uh, I would make the counter argument, treating Joe Biden the same as treating Donald Trump or any other political candidate, whether it be Democratic or Republican, without that track record, would actually be unfair to them, (laughs) people who have done none of those things. This idea that CNN defends itself by reference to fairness is a defense based on something that no longer exists. In a way, you can flip it and say CNN is liberated. They should just do what they think is right, whatever that is, and then defend themselves. And this idea of treating two political candidates equally is explicitly rooted in the bygone era of the fairness doctrine and equal time and all of these principles that used to govern how network television behaved. And, you know, that's all disappeared. I mean, look at social media. Facebook decided, and Twitter, I suppose, independently, after the last election cycle and January 6th to ban Trump because of principles that they articulated, that they believed were universal. I find those principles unconvincing, and I find their sequence of decision-making unpersuasive. But at least they explained what they were doing, and they were free to do it because they're not the public square. They're a privately owned profit-making corporation that seeks an audience that looks a little bit like a public square. So I just think we can simplify the question. We don't have to judge the networks by the bygone standards of Edward Murrow. Let's look at the world we're actually in. You can take the view, the best way to combat bad speech is more speech. That's kind of my view. I'm very nervous about censoring anybody on the basis of some abstract principle. But at the same time, I couldn't possibly defend putting Donald Trump in front of a friendly audience and allowing him to essentially rehearse campaign statements in that way and calling it journalism. Yeah. What do you think was the calculation for that? Like, I've been wondering whether this idea of like having a town hall with a, you know, Republican audience, whether that is CNN trying to, I guess, show people that you don't have to go to Fox News in order to get coverage. Like what what is going on? Because it it doesn't seem like an obvious decision aside from just the pure incentives of, oh, we'll get people to watch and it'll go viral on social media. And that's, you know, more money. I think that there's been in the past six years, a kind of circular loop that we've been in as it relates to this, which is that there's a a default setting that people believe that the media, especially people on the right, believe that the media is liberal or left-leaning. And when the criticisms of Donald Trump began to escalate for points that people thought were really at odds with what we think of as normal political behavior in the United States, That sounded to very many people as the liberal bias of the media rearing its head. And as a consequence of that, there have been like these counter efforts to make sure that they don't appear in that way, that you give, you know, a hearing to Trump in the way that you would give to anyone else. Now, what that has inspired among people on the left, accusations of normalization, and people saying, oh, well, you know, this behavior is, you know, so you know, at odds and, you know, you're treating it the, the way that you would treat anyone else as opposed to the way you would treat, you know, this really volatile and dangerous development in American politics. In that kind of 
soul searching, just the plain market realities, you know, intrude. Because the idea of holding a, a town hall with Donald Trump in order to appeal to viewers who might have written off CNN, you know, years ago is fine as long as you recognize that you also put at risk the viewers you already have. (laughs) There are people who are watching CNN precisely because they don't think they were likely to see the kind of spectacle that the town hall devolved into. It may just be, as opposed to augmenting your audience, you wind up swapping out a significant portion of the one you have for some other portion to be determined of people who weren't watching previously. Yeah. We live in an era of many journalisms, right? There's not one big church anymore, any more than there is in politics. So you have to decide if you're running CNN, what does integrity mean to you? You're under no obligation to hold this town hall. You're under no obligation to ever put Donald Trump on the air. But Tyler, I mean, you're, you know, your speculation about what might have motivated them to put on the town hall. That all sounds right to me. I mean, surely they look over and see Fox News disrupted by the Dominion trial and Tucker Carlson's forced resignation, and they think, well, maybe there's an opportunity there. I I can't imagine they haven't at least thought about that. They've got new management, uh, David Zasloff, who's the ultimate boss at CNN, you know, they're running a very big, complicated media business in the age of streaming. CNN is a big asset whose future is up in the air. And so I don't want to guess at their motivations. I just want to observe that it's really on them now to decide what kind of an outfit do they want to be. This cycle is going to test them over and over again. I heard Chris, like, I guess is his name, the head of CNN, defend the use of the audience by saying, well, people need to understand what Trump voters really respond to and what they sound like. It's a reality check to hear them applaud a misogynistic insult from the stage to realize this is your America. Oh, come on. I mean, I I already know that's our America. I don't need it turned into a circus so many reminders, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's not good enough to defend the town hall on those grounds. If you want to do a town hall, you'd you'd have to think through how to manage the audience's place. There are lots of different ways to do it. The way they did it is indefensible. Coming up, we'll hear from Jelani Cobb and Steve Cole about the questions they've been getting from their students. I'm wondering what you guys think will be sort of the role of journalism in this upcoming presidential election, just in the sense that, you know, when Trump was running the first time, we didn't really know what he would be like as a president. But now we obviously know what a Trump presidency looks like. We know about the things that happened during the presidency. We know about what happened in the immediate aftermath on January 6th. We know about the pending legal challenges that Trump is facing. And so, I mean, just given everything that we know about him as a president, as a candidate, what are you expecting to see from journalists who were interviewing Trump, you know, in this upcoming election cycle? There are lots of different outlets with lots of different inclinations and orientations. And so at the risk of sounding like I'm hedging, I think you're going to see a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. I do think one of the things that will be interesting to see is what the relationship with Fox News looks like. Having that gargantuan settlement in the Dominion case, which is directly connected to the close proximity of Fox News to the Trump campaign, it would be very interesting to see how they position themselves 
going forward as he runs for the White House again. Yeah, that's a great point. That's probably one of the most interesting media stories ahead of us. And it feels very unsettled because of the Dominion case, Tucker Carlson's departure. And there seemed a moment a month ago when the DeSantis sort of surge was drawing Fox's attention and, and making them overtly hostile to Trump. He certainly felt that way and was firing back. But if Trump is going to stampede to the nomination, then Fox is going to have a big choice on its hands about how to manage uh, this. And based on their history, I would assume they would ride the Trump wave again. You know, to your question about journalism's role, I think another way to ask the question is, how will journalism really matter in the next election cycle? And I do think it'll matter in the traditional ways. There's a lot of complicated events ahead of us. These grand juries are going to report out. There's already one criminal case that's going to move forward. We don't know who Trump is going to rely on to run his campaign. We don't know where his fundraising strategy is going to land. There's going to be a lot of reporting to do. So all of that, I do think, will matter and will inform at least some of the electorate. But we have to recognize, I mean, these are strange times in American politics. We've got a heavily polarized country in which the two groups of voters are very, very locked in. And they already know what they think. They already know which lever they plan to pull in 2024. And if you read the political science about independent voters, I mean, the great, great, great majority of registered independent voters already know who they're going to vote for, are locked in. And the so-called swing voters is a small and maddeningly diverse and elusive group of people. You know, most people who are unplugged from the country's polarization don't vote. It's the peculiar person who makes the effort to vote, but really can't decide between Donald Trump and Joe Biden after all this. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is a peculiar person. And and a lot of money is spent trying to focus group who these people are and how to influence them. And I don't think that traditional reporting about, you know, campaign finance or the decision-making of prosecutors around indicting Trump, like, that is not on the minds of this, of this group of people. That doesn't mean that journalism shouldn't march forward, play its constitutional role, and that it won't matter. Of course it will, but it's a, it's a strange time for the relationship between journalism and the voting public. To the point that Steve made about those voters, I usually say, that is what happens when a margin for error grows arms and legs and goes out and walks down the street. So. <laughs> At this point, given everything we know about Trump, what are sort of like the main questions that you think journalists should be asking him if they get the chance to, you know, sit down one-on-one -on -one with him? Or what questions would you ask him? I guess it's, it's just it's so hard to know. I mean, that town hall the other day easily could have been all about January 6th. Or, I mean, a lot of it was about the, the E. Jean Carroll trial. There's so much history and baggage. And so, yeah, what topics do you think journalists should be focusing on and trying to get him to give real, you know, factual answers to, assuming that that is something that is possible under the right conditions? Well, I think they should be asking him, you know, what he would do as president about the war in Ukraine. What does he mean when, when he says that he's going to solve the war in 24 hours? What is his attitude about Russian aggression? Would he continue to supply uh, weapons to Ukraine? And go around the world and ask him specific questions about what he would do, because he often responds to those questions authentically, meaning the way he actually speaks in the White House, which we now have a very disconcerting and thorough record of how he 
deliberates around matters of war and peace. If you just go pick up John Bolton's memoir, mm. when Bolton actually took notes at every one of these meetings and his memoir is essentially a, a declassified record of national security meetings around all kinds of subjects. And that the president of the United States would address matters that would affect you know, the American military, the American public, the management of our border in the language that he does and with the knowledge that he displays. I mean, there's not much of a gap between what he will say in an interview, if you ask these questions, and what he actually says in the situation room. Just take that formula and apply it to all the things you'd be thinking about in a second Trump presidency, his enemies list, his idea about retribution, which he speaks about openly. What does he mean? Ask it in a friendly way. Like, tell me about your ideas of retribution. Who, who do you have in mind? Have you given it some thought? What are you going to do on day one? You know, um, uh, you, you, last time you didn't fire your attorney general at moments of crisis. What you're thinking about next time around? What are you going to do? Like, you're not going to let Bill Barr screw you again, are you? What are you going to do? And maybe it'll shake people up. But in any event, it's a role journalists can play to try to get this on the record. And it's a traditional question that journalists ask. What are you going to do as president? I would add to that, that many years ago and at a different institution, I had a student whose likelihood of opining in class was inversely relational to his likelihood of actually having done the reading. <laughs> and I relate, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I had up to that point in my career, been, you know, acquainted with students who hadn't done the reading, but I had never had anyone who was as vocal as this person without having graced a single page of the assigned readings. And the approach I eventually took was to ask pointed, highly specific questions that related to the subject matter that we were dealing with that week you know, not the previous week, not any, the particular specific thing that we're dealing with right now. I, I think that there have to be really specific questions with him, not open-ended questions. The economy did this at this point. What is the response to this? You know, you, you made this point about the deficit. You know, the deficit grew during your presidency. What do you say about, you know, what is the approach to lowering it? Like, why didn't you lower it before? I think that there have to be like very particular things that don't lend themselves to the kind of open-ended platform where a person can just kind of, you know, turn those things into like verbal dissertations. You know, you have to kind of nail these things down into a format that admittedly would be more boring, but unquestionably would likely be more, more substantive. Yeah, sort of going against the whole like TV theatrics thing. Mm -hmm. So I want to play a clip just of a 2020 interview from Jonathan Swan, who has sort of become known as like a Trump whisperer. And in the clip, Trump brings out a chart to try to prove that the U.S. is lower than the world, his quotes in relation to COVID deaths. The world? Lower than the lower world? Lower than what is that? Europe? In Take what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do you that? have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. The cases. Why are not dead. as a proportion of when population? When we have somebody, 
What it says is when you have somebody that yeah. has it, where there's a case, oh, okay. the people that live sure. from oh. those cases. It's surely a relevant statistic to say if the US has X population and X percentage of death of that population no, versus South Korea. No, you have to Korea. go by the cases. Well, look at South Korea, if, for example. 51 million population, 300 deaths. It's like, it's you, crazy you compared to know that. I do. It's you on the, don't know it's, that. Don't, you think they're faking their statistics, uh, South Korea? I, an I won't advanced get into country? that because they have a very good relationship yeah. with the country. But you don't know that. And they have spikes. Look, here's Germany, one. Germany, low, 9,000. Here's one right here, United States. You take anyway. the number of cases. Okay. Now, look, we're last, meaning we're first. Last? I don't know we what we're first in. As a well, take a look. Okay. Again, it's cases. Just, okay. I think Jonathan Swan is brilliant. And one thing I know about his methodology is that he, and I'm sure a lot of great broadcast interviewers do this, this is not my thing, so I'm fascinated to learn like what you do to, to become good at this. He watches his interview subjects' previous live interviews very thoroughly mm -hmm. and maps out their standard responses. And figures out what questions they have mastered so that no matter how many ways you ask it, they've already got their canned answer and that's what you're going to get. And I think the purpose of doing that up front is to avoid asking those questions, yeah. <laughs> to figure out some other way to get to the subject. And so I think when I read his transcripts, I see that homework on the page because he's figured out a way to ask a new question. And there's something about the way Trump or other world leaders that he's interviewed respond to it that makes it harder for it to to just be that file card they have in their head that they repeat over and over again. Do you guys have time for one last question? It's actually mm -hmm. related sure. to Columbia. Yes. I'm, I'm just wondering what kinds of questions you get from students about, you know, sort of political coverage during this this era and sort of like it could be anything from like, how do you cover someone like Trump to like, what is the state of journalism or how does one stay objective? Like, I'm curious about the most common things that you have young journalists asking you about and then what your advice to them is. Steve, would you like to go first? <laughs> well, I mean, I I've, I've teach uh, covering politics in different ways. And I think the best students are interested in figuring out how to go beyond the election cycle and write about the stuff that the longer arc of politics is made of. Those are the most inspiring students to be around. A lot of other students who are great, but maybe not so ambitious, they just want to know what, how to do what we've been talking about. They understand what the spectrum of political journalism looks like, and they're basically asking, how can I be good at it? So you can go from the quotidian to the profound in a single class, but I do love the fact that students are still interested in this function because we need them. Yeah. Do you find that they're excited about journalism right now and, you know, the coming election cycle and the craziness of it? Or are people worried just in the sense that, you know, Trump was the guy who coined fake news? And even though it was like a sort of financially flush time for the industry under him, just because there was more and more subscribers and people tuning in to kind of understand the Trump presidency. He was like simultaneously insulting the media every chance he got. I, I think that there's a, a great deal of excitement, you know, with the students that I interact with. And it's not necessarily tied to, you know, the coming election cycle. Even, you know, students who are here from abroad, 
you know, they know that next year there, there will be a presidential election, that will be a consequential election, et cetera. But I think that they are much more interested in the kind of big scope questions. You know, they're interested in covering local news and local politics. And even in some of the kind of high-level 10,000-foot questions about what does objectivity look like? You know, what is the role of objectivity in contemporary reporting? You know, the, the kind of tumult that we've seen in the last six years has not shaken the zeal and enthusiasm of the students that we interact with, you know, for journalism and for covering politics in particular. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Jelani Cobb is the dean of the Columbia Journalism School and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Steve Cole is a staff writer at The New Yorker and former dean of the Columbia Journalism School. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sydney Cobb. We had special production assistance today from Tom Cote. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you so much for listening.